0: The men approached him while he was standing in his front yard. He made that intimidating wrinkling of his nose that you might expect. Well, what is it that you want? I mean, the question really made sense when men who are wearing old clothes, carrying swords, and smelling like sheep, ten of them, come standing in your front yard. What do you want? The men who were there just looked at each other and they repeated the words they were told to say. We give you greetings. We come in David's name. Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now, I hear that it is sheep shearing time when your shepherds were with us, We did not mistreat them, and the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants, and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable toward my men. Since we come at a festive time, please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. And then the men, they waited. You see, what happened in Old Testament Israel was during sheep grazing season, thousands and thousands of sheep, and flocks and flocks and flocks would just cover the Judean countryside because wealthy animal owners would send their sheep out to graze. Now, this was a perfect circumstance for thieves, robbers, and wild animals to come and destroy their flocks, but it didn't happen. You wanna know why? Because Israelite men, Men who weren't a part of the Israeli army, but men who knew how to fight, who knew how to defend, would go out and form a sort of militia and protect the flocks of wealthy animal owners. And what did they ask in return? Just a tip. There was no contract that was signed. There was no law that said that they had to be paid. But just like you and I might go out to eat and then give gratuity to a server who is serving us, they, during sheep shearing time, the time when the flocks would come back in and the owners would shear their sheep and make a profit off their sheep, the men who protected the sheep just said, hey, if you enjoyed the service, If anything was protected, if if nothing went missing, if, if your time with our men was good, could you just spare something? Could you just give us something? It was a common request that these men made. It was a common practice that David and his men protected this man's sheep. But you see, the problem was David's men weren't speaking to a common sense man. His name was Nabal, and this is what he said. Who is this David? And who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. And why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men coming from who knows where? O oh, Nabal didn't just forget to tip. Nabal didn't just say no to their request for something to support themselves. He flat out disrespected David and his men. He knew who David was. He knew David was the son of Jesse. He knew David was next in line to become king. He knew David just slayed Goliath. He knew very well who he was. But he also knew he left his father's home to go and be a part of King Saul's court. He also knew he had left King Saul's court for reasons we're going to get into in a little bit. And so he said, who is this runaway slave? Why should I pay him and his men? I don't know him. To their credit, these men simply turned around and went back. And I cannot wait to tell you what happened next. You want to know what happened next? Do you know what happened next? As I said before, this is probably one of the greatest Bible stories that you've never heard from before, and it's a story that centers around a speech, a speech given by a woman in the Bible, in fact, a speech that is the longest speech given by a woman in the Old Testament. And it's a speech that, while it's not a huge part in David's life, really makes a difference for why he is a man after God's own heart. The speech is given by a woman named Abigail, and the Holy Spirit, who inspired Scripture, tells us a thing about Abigail. First, Abigail is married to the man out in the field. He's married to Nabal, this man, a certain man in Moan, who had property there at Carmel. He was very wealthy. Literally, the Hebrew says, he was very heavy, like, The phrase we would use, he's loaded. He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal. And his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman. She was the total package. She was beautiful inside and out. And how does scripture describe her husband? But her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. This is the story of David, Abigail, and Nabal. A story of a fool, a beauty, and a man after God's own heart. This past week, I was thinking about why this story doesn't get more press. Why it isn't more famous. Why it isn't taught in Sunday school lessons like the story we looked at last week, like David and Goliath. And I was thinking, and I think I came up with a theory. The theory is because in this story, David, the golden boy, the man after God's own heart, is not the hero. He's a man who's messed up, who's making a mistake. And yet, despite that, as I said before, this this story shows us why he is a man after God's own heart. And in fact, it shows us all why you and I are women and men after God's own heart. Throughout this series, we've been asking some questions around that idea. In week one, we talked about what is a man or a woman after God's own heart. And we said a man or a woman after God's own heart is someone who has God alone on the throne of their heart. That God alone Sits there, and God alone is the one whom we look to as the sole source of all goodness, of all blessings, of all forgiveness, of all peace, of all comfort, of all joy. That's what a person after God's own heart is. In the second week, we looked at what a person after God's own heart does, as we looked at the story of David and Goliath and what that means for our lives person after God's own heart fights battles for the Lord's knowing that it's already won by Christ. The victory is ours because of Christ. This week we're going to ask a new question. A question of how we become a man or a woman after God's own heart. That's our big question for today and there's going to be a big answer to that question. But first, I need to tell you what happens next in this story. You ready? All right, before I get there, I got to rewind to chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, where we left David last time. David had just defeated Goliath. And overnight, he became an international celebrity. He immediately rose to a place of prominence in the court of King Saul he wasn't just his harp player anymore but King Saul promoted him to a position in the government in the army where he was a commander of general of thousands here's someone who had never put on an army uniform before commanding leading thousands of troops and doing it so well that his fellow commanders loved him the people of Israel loved him because the Lord's hand was with him and when whatever he did he was successful Saul even loved him. His son, Jonathan, loved David. His daughter, Michael, loved David so much, they fell in love and they got married. Everyone loved David. People were singing his praises. And that's when things started to change. Saul got jealous. And Saul snapped. He took a spear and not once but twice tried to drive it through David. And just like that, David's rise as quick as it was, turned into a fall. And Saul made sure it was as permanent as possible. Saul drove him from his court. Saul drove him from his home. He lost his position in the government. He lost his wife because he had to leave home. He lost his best friend, Jonathan. And we find David at chapter 24 in a very dark place. We find him living in a cave And it's dark, not just because there's no light in a cave, but it's dark because David's forgotten who fights his battles. It's the Lord's. We see the king who is anointed to be God's king over all of Israel and who is humbly ready to take over that position, sulking in a cave alone. But then we hear one of perhaps the coolest verses in the entire saga of David. In chapter 22, while he's sitting in a cave of Adullam, his brothers and fathers and whole household heard about it and they went down to him there. And it wasn't just his family. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered around him. You see, during this time, King Saul left what he was supposed to be doing and ruling and governing Israel and he hunted David. That meant the nation was falling apart. Things weren't getting done. And there was a lot of people discontent, distressed, and in debt. And where'd they go? Well, God brought them to David. In the time where he needed people the most, God gave David people who loved him. And David loved them. If you read the rest of 1st and 2nd Samuel and 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles you're going to hear about these 400 and later 200 more people who join King David in the cave. These people will eventually become the commanders in his army because while they were there, David became their commander and about 400 people were with him. He raised them up to be officials in his court and these people go on to be some of the baddest, most mighty warriors in all of Israel's history. Now I'm giving you all of this background so you know that it's these men. It's these men who are trained elite fighters by King David Who just got done spending an entire season watching sheep in Judea, who now showed up at Nabal's house hungry, looking for just something to put food on the table. And it's these men who were rejected by Nabal, these men and David. David's men turned around and they went back. When they arrived, they reported every word. You just imagine David hearing what happened. And this is David's reply, calm, cold, and calculated. David said to his men, each of you strap on your sword. And So they did. And David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went with David while 200 men stayed with the supplies. David isn't going just to renegotiate the contract. David isn't going just to talk about, hey, you forgot to tip. No, David has bad intentions. Listen to what he says. David, he's talking in the third person. He says this, It has been useless all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing of his was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. May God deal with David. This is David talking. May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. Now, David's not going just to just have a little man-to-man chit-chat. David is going with vengeance in his heart. And it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing because of who David is. David is a man after God's own heart. David is the one anointed by God to be the level-headed leader over all of Israel. David is the one who just a chapter prior was afforded the opportunity to kill King Saul, a certified insane man who is trying to take his life. And David said, no, it's not right for me to kill the Lord's anointed. I'm not gonna do that. And what is he doing here in this chapter? Well, David goes insane. I mean, isn't that what insanity is when you lose control over your emotions and your behavior? It would be like if you were a server at a restaurant and a large family comes in and they order a bunch of food and drinks and they forgot to tip. That would be wrong, right? And you could be mad and you could tell your manager about that But what this would be like is you going to each one of those people's homes and dropping a bomb on their neighborhood. This was familial genocide. This is embarrassing, sinful behavior. You know the fifth commandment, right? It says, you shall not commit a murder. First John in the New Testament goes a little bit more in depth and it says, anyone... Anyone who hates his brother or his sister, anyone who hates their neighbor is already guilty of murder. David's already guilty of murder. But that's not David's only sin. Do you want to know what David's sin is, his sin beneath his sin? It's a sin against the first commandment, the commandment that you shall have no other God's a commandment that Jesus talks about when he says that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. If being a man or a woman after God's own heart means that God alone is on the throne of your heart, that God alone is your source of comfort, that God alone is the source of your salvation, that God alone is the one who takes care of your problems, in this moment, David is not a man after God's own heart. Because you want to know who sits on the throne in David's heart? It's David. And David is fighting sword in hand to sit on that throne. You want to know how I know that? The Bible tells us in the verses that we're about to read three times, the same phrase keeps coming up over and over again. David, what are you doing? David, you are avenging yourself with your own hands. And after all, isn't that what self-salvation is? Anytime that you seek deliverance, every time that you seek salvation, anytime that you seek comfort, joy, try to fix your problems with your own hand instead of God's hands... What is it? It's called nothing else but idolatry because there is some other God on the throne in your heart that you are bowing down to, and it's not the true God. And idolatry is a temptation that is especially difficult for all of us. You want to know why I know that? It's because God has made our hearts with longings "...and desires and wants to be filled." God has created our heart so that we want something or someone to sit on the throne of our hearts. He made our hearts that way so that we seek him and we find him every good and perfect gift. Most of all, the good and gracious God who has in his mercy given us his love and his forgiveness in Christ. He wants us to seek him and find him and he wants to sit on the throne of our hearts. But you've heard the saying, right? Nature abhors a vacuum. What does that mean? Well, that means if God is not on the throne of your hearts, something is. And more often than not, it's us. We look at the throne in our hearts and we think, you know what? God is not big enough to fill that space. And so, what do we do? We try to fill it ourselves. What David did when he had a problem on his hand, he looked to take care of it himself with vengeance that led to hate that was about to lead to murder. What happens when we look in our life and we feel as though we are guilty, we feel as though that we've done so much wrong things that it can't possibly change, We could say, I know I have a God who has loved me and taken away my sins as far as the east is from the west, but what do we do? We try to fill it up with good things, good things that I do that try to outweigh the bad. What happens in your life when you feel loneliness and you know that you have a God who loves you and who has brought you into his family and promises you that you will never be alone? No, we go and try to fulfill that loneliness through sex and relationships that aren't right for our relationship with God. What happens in our life when we feel as though that we are so out of control in our life and we can't control anything? We know, we know that we have a God who has been faithful in the past, who has loved us and taken care of anything, and yet what do we do to try to gain control of our life? Well, it's another self-salvation project be busy, fill up your calendar with things that make you feel self-important. What happens in our life when we know that we have a hole in our heart and we need something to fill it? We know we have a God who says, I have completed you and given you everything you ever need or want, and yet we find joy, where? In fleeting things a bottom of a bottle, an end of a cake, and we expect that to compare to the eternal joy that Christ gives us. And you've been there before. You've been there in that moment, and you say to yourself, when temptation for that comes, it feels so wrong and yet so right. It does feel right because there is a hole there. There is something there that needs to be filled, and so that part feels right. But whenever it is not God, It feels wrong because temptations for that, temptations for that promise to fill the void in our heart, but they will always leave you feeling empty. They will never fill you completely. They will never fill you totally. And so whatever it is, whether it's busyness, pride, a cake or a bottle, a relationship, you name it, will never fill that spot completely. But that's why God sent Abigail. That's why God sent Abigail to David. While David was sinning, there was someone acting on his behalf. One of the servants told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Listen, David sent messengers from the wilderness to give our master his greetings, but he hurled insults at them. Yet these men were very good to us. They did not mistreat us. And the whole time they were in the fields near them, nothing was missing. Night and day, there was a wall around us. The whole time we were herding our sheep near them. Now think it over and see what you can do because disaster is hanging over our master and his whole household. They knew who David was. They knew who his men were. He is such a wicked man, Nabal that no one can talk to him. So Abigail acted quickly. She took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five dress sheep, five sayas of roasted grain, and 100 cakes of raisins, and 200 cakes of pressed figs, and loaded them on donkeys. Then she told her servants, go, and I'll follow you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. She's an intelligent woman. As she came riding her donkeys into Mount Ravine, there were David and his men descending toward her and she met them. Now I need you all to take note of what she says and what she does next. Here is the longest speech given by any female in the entire Old Testament and it is one in its total to take note of. This is what she says and what she does. First, she fell at David's feet and she said... Pardon your servant, my lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. The first thing she does is she became a servant. And you need to understand what's going on here. Here is David, who is a rogue without a home, he's someone who lives in a cave. He is not the king of Israel yet. And here is a woman, a very wealthy woman, one of the most prominent wealthy women in Israel, bowing down to him, treating him as though he is already his king, and becoming a servant, honoring him. She's not done yet. This is what she said. She said, please pay no attention to my Lord, to that wicked man Nabal. He is just like his name. His name means fool. And I don't know if his parents named him that, or that's just what his name became to mean. But his name means fool, and folly goes with him. And as for me, your servant. I did not see the men my Lord sent. Without throwing shade at Nabal, but just saying who he is, he's a fool. And he acted like that. She takes blame for what happened and said, listen, I didn't see the men. If they were there and I saw them. This never would have happened. That's the second thing that Abigail does is she takes blame. She takes the blame and she keeps going. She says, and now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming you, my Lord, be like Nabal. She does this Jedi move. Remember, he's on his way to destroy Nabal's house. And she says this, as surely as the Lord has kept you. She tells him, look, this is the Lord's will. Be, live, do, act in line with the Lord's will. He's kept you from this, David. Don't do this. And she goes on. She says, and let this gift, all those things I lifted before, which were far greater, a massive tip for these guys. Let this gift, which your servant has brought to you, my Lord, be given to the men who follow you. The next thing Abigail does is she makes the payment. She makes the payment and then some, and in doing so, she fixes the problem. She completely fixes the problem. And my favorite thing about this is that Abigail is not done preaching yet. She is not done proclaiming truth yet. Here is what she says to David. She keeps going. She says, please forgive your servant's presumption. The Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord because you fight Lord's battles and no wrongdoing will be found in you as long as you live. Even though someone is pursuing you to take your life, the life of my Lord will be bound securely in the bundle of the living by the Lord your God. But the lives of your enemies, he will hurl away as from the pocket of a sling. Do you understand what Abigail is doing here? She is preaching the gospel to David. She's saying, David, because of your God, because of our Lord, no wrongdoing will be found in you because of the Lord, your life will be wrapped securely in his. She's saying, like, you put an important thing in your wallet or purse or in a safe for keep saving. There, David, is your life because of the Lord. And then she takes him back to a time. She takes him back to a time where David completely and utterly trusted in his God for this. A time where he used a sling to do his battles. And she says, David, just like that, just like that, your God will take care of everything else in your life. You see, what Abigail is doing here right now is pointing David away from salvation from himself and to salvation from the hand of God. That's why Abigail was sent to David, and David recognizes that. David says to her, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today. To meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. That is why Abigail was sent to David. It was to point David away from salvation by his own hands and back to salvation from God's hands. And that is why Abigail was sent to you. That is why Abigail was sent to me. It was to preach to you and to me the message that your life is bound securely in the life of the living God. And I'm not talking about the Abigail married to Nabal. Who is it that came to put a stop to you when you were running away, around wild, cursing the God who made you? Who is it who came to you and took on the perfect form of servitude though he was rich? Who was it that came and took upon himself all of the blame for which he was not responsible? Who was it who came and made a payment for all of the wrong that you have ever done and made a payment and then some? Who was it that came into your life and fixed all of your problems, the worst of which was the relationship with your God? Y'all already know who it is. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus. It is Jesus who came from heaven and when you were running wild, trying to run away from your God and commit sin, he is the one who stood between you and sin and said, stop, he is the one who came and paid the price for your sins. He is the one who came and just like Abigail stood between David and his sins, he is the one who stood between you and your God and gives you salvation. As Peter said in his sermon, salvation comes from no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which we are saved than Jesus Christ, our righteousness. And that, my friends, matters. That matters because that answers how you and I become a man or a woman after God's own heart. You see, if you've been a Christian even for a minute, you know what the Bible says about our heart, that nothing good lives in us. All our righteous acts, they're filth. No one is good, not even one. We all have sinned and fallen away. And yet there is one who is good, who came from outside of us to draw us to himself and make us good. There is nothing good in me, in my actions, or in my emotions that makes me a man or a woman after God's own heart, but it is God alone who comes and storms the throne of my heart and with a hostile takeover takes it and makes it his home. That's what makes you a man or a woman after God's own heart. That something good, a salvation that is good, a salvation that is more beautiful, more glorious than something that you could dream of or carry out on your own came from God, from outside of you to make you a man or a woman after God's own heart. And that matters. That matters because now you get to be an Abigail in your life. You get to be an Abigail someone who follows Christ, someone who has Christ in their heart and you get to stop all of the temptations to care of self-salvation projects on your own and you get to stand in the way because of him who came to you. You get to show love to people that are unlovable. I mean, just think about Abigail. Think about who her husband was that she was trying to save. Think about who David was, who is coming to destroy her house and her children. These are unlovable men. And yet she comes and shows great love. You're able to stand in the midst of hardship. You're able to stand in the midst of trial and take action, knowing, trusting that it is God who provides in the past and he will in the future. That's what being a Christ follower is. That's what being an Abigail is. Can I share with you how this story ends? Abigail goes home and she tells Nabal about what she did. And he says, thank you so much. You're a beautiful and intelligent woman. Not quite. Abigail goes home and he, Nabal, was in the house holding a banquet like that of a king. He was in high spirits and very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until daybreak. Then in the morning when Nabal was sober, his wife told him all these things. She's intelligent. And when she told him, his heart failed him and he became like a stone. Ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. Story keeps going because David heard that Nabal was dead and he said, Praise be to the Lord who has upheld my cause against Nabal for treating me with contempt. He has kept his servant from doing wrong and he has brought Nabal's wrongdoing down on his head. And then get this, then David sent word to Abigail asking her to become his wife. And she's an intelligent woman. Abigail quickly got on a donkey and attended by her female servants, went with David's messengers and became his wife. It's Quite the ending to the story. And I pointed out for this reason, it's because when you think about Nabal, an evil, wicked man who did nothing but draw the worst out of David, it stands in stark comparison to Abigail, who drew the best out of David. And as we think about our spouses or our potential spouses, isn't that what we'd like? Them to be someone who draws the best out of us, right? But I tell you what, Abigail did more than just draw goodness out of David, She drew David to herself. And in that, she once again proved to be very much Christ-like. Because what Christ does is he does not draw goodness out of us. No, there's nothing good that lives in me. God does not just draw the bad out of us like a ghostbuster, sucking the bad out. No, what he does is he eternally draws us to himself, unites us to himself, and marries us to himself. Ephesians chapter 5 paints the picture of Christ as our spouse, as Christ as the bride who marries the church. Ephesians 5 says husbands are to love their wives just like Christ. Just like Christ who loved the church and gave himself up to her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. God does not just draw good things out of us. He draws us literally to himself and eternally unites us to himself and therein gives us all that is his, his radiance, his holiness, his perfection. And there we stand as men or women without blemish, men or women upon whom's heart God has made his home, men and women after God's own heart. Amen. Amen.